This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Welcome back, everybody. We're going to get started again. I've been told that the seats at the front, we need to get them filled up because there's a few people who are sitting at the back. So if you can come further forward, that would be... We won't bite. Yeah. Don't all move at once, though. <laughs> um, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us back into this session. I pray now as you speak that you may use us and speak through us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, um, most of the stuff that we've talked about and we're going to be talking about is in more depth in this. So, I find this, this book is 10 years in the making, actually. Um, when I had this dream, it was back in 2008. And it's now 2020. And it's finally here because God said you need to write this down and share it. So, this is a, a story that follows a girl and a guy. So it's not just for the girls, it's for both. And it dialogues through their story and it jumps in and out of the sanctuary as like a remedy to all of the mistakes that are shown in this book. There's diary entries, there's all kinds of stuff that is just, it's an incredible story. Um, so if you want to, to get this, then you can see, um, see us afterwards. Um, just another reminder about slido.com, it's where we're doing our Q&A. Um, you can like the questions that are in there, and the most likes will get answered first. Right now, the most liked question is, how do I know he is the one? So we're going to be doing that in session four as our Q&A session. Um, and we're going to be answering the questions in the ones that have the most likes going down. Um, the next question is, how do you know if you're being too picky? And then the third one is boundaries. How far is too far? These are great questions. Um, so as you continue liking them, they'll swap orders. Um, so go to slider.com or download the app and just put in that code. Okay. So we're going to go back to foundations. The foundation was um, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. So, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So using this passage, we can jump through the sanctuary message in a way that it relates to us. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not worship of us. It's a place to house the presence of God. We're going to figure out how that works. So we're going to take a journey through the sanctuary can everyone see that okay? So many see the sanctuary as like this old-fashioned relic of a thing that, you know, was in the wilderness in yesteryear. Um, you know, it was useful for the Israelites back then, but maybe not so useful to us now. Um, you know, we don't have sacrifices anymore. We don't, you know, our, pre our ministers don't wear, you know, special garments. We don't have one specific place to worship, you know. I'm sure there's people from around the world in this room. So how is the sanctuary relevant to our worship today? And more specifically, how is it relevant to our relationships? So in my opinion, after the cross and what that represents, I believe this sanctuary message is the most powerful tool we have as young people today. It is so mind-blowing how you can apply this to so many situations in your life, but my passion for the sanctuary is how it relates to relationships. So God gave this pattern to Israel so that he could do what? Dwell with them. It was the perfect representation of a relational God who wanted to be with us. Not one that wanted to stay aloof, it's somebody that actually wanted to be real and close with his people. And the layout of the sanctuary was really specific and ordered, and there was a pattern and direction to its services. And each service kind of played into the other. The one couldn't happen without the other. It, nothing was standalone. Everything worked together in seamless harmony. And we're going to just see how practical God's plan is for our relationships. And if we need to, 
if we need to find healing from past mistakes and hurts, you can find it here too. And also an incredibly practical blueprint of how not to let that happen again. So the entrance into the, the sanctuary, there was only one way in and out, the doorway. And the courtyard encircled the entire tabernacle. And practically speaking for us, this area represents, thank you for that, it represents our circle of friends. Can you see how the, the it kind of was a, yeah, it's like a circle of friends, the friend zone. So for anyone to gain admittance to that area of the courtyard, they had to come through the door. And the purpose of them coming in was to bring an acceptable sacrifice. And there was only one way in. How many ways in? One way in. This area here was the courtyard. Christ says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The first checkpoint in the sanctuary is the door. And Christ should be the only way in and out of our lives. He is the standard of entry for anybody wishing to be around us. Anybody who wants access to our temple courtyard, our life, or our friendship circles, all of these closer acquaintances should be considered in relation to Christ's character and the life that he led. The people that we should surround ourselves with are those who are aiming for this standard of Christ in their lives. And if they're not believers, they still should be the sort of people that display those characteristics. I have many friends that aren't in the church, but if you look at who they are and what they represent, without them even knowing it, it's Christ. These are the people that we should be surrounding ourselves with. Galatians 5, to 23 outlines what some of these characteristics should look like. The fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, the friends that we have and the people that we've surrounded ourselves with, do they display these kind of characteristics? Many times we let people into our life simply because we find them interesting. Or, you know, I'm kind of attracted to him. He's kind of good-looking. She's beautiful. And you start to just be around people that you just vibe with because you just feel cool around them. Very often, the last thing that we think about is if they actually uphold this standard. Mm. And the reality is, do we uphold that standard ourselves? In my early relationships and in my early friendships, the last thing on my mind when I met somebody was, are they a good Christ-like individual? Are they going to influence me for good? I didn't care. We just were having a good time. And that's where you get people that kind of, you know, jump over the fence, they kind of sneak in through the back door, and you end up being surrounded by all of these people in your life, and they're the very people that bring drama. They're the very people that bring distractions and situations that you just didn't want to get into, like we discovered the problem in session one. Keep doing the things that I don't want to do. The problem is the people that you've surrounded yourselves with you leave yourself no other choice but to end up being in those cycles. Do these people genuinely respect you or do they bring gossip to your door? Do they like talking about others? That's a really good indicator because Christ isn't about that. Self-control, is that a factor? All of these things influence who we are going to have getting closer and closer to us. The courtyard was kind of the outskirts. So you had Israel on the outside, but the people that come closest to you, they, has to, they have to come with a purpose and intentionality. So we need to consider what offering these people are bringing to our lives. So I'm going to get in a bit closer. <coughs> the standards we allow to enter our courtyards directly determine the people that we admit into our holy place and the most holy places of our life. If you think back to the story of the girl in that room, 
that was like her most holy place where she was interacting with these guys, where her, you know, your personal relationship happened, your heart, your heart of hearts. Because she hadn't spent time assessing the people in her courtyard, she didn't have a standard, the standard of Christ, she had her own standard. The quality of people she ended up being in relationships with was just a mess. We all crave community, but if we find ourselves constantly gravitating towards people who are like, you know, super casual about God, um, being in their lives or not, or they've even denied him completely, it really speaks volumes about the condition of our own hearts. Like I said, I had the desire for a good godly man. I wanted a priest of my home because I saw that as the only way that my marriage and my future was not going to end up like my parents'. I wanted that Christ-like love because Christ, you know, I grew up knowing that God doesn't fail. I didn't want to fail in love. But I didn't take time to set Christ up as my standard of entry into my life. That's the first place that many of us fall down. Our courtyards are the most important place where we determine our future happiness. When I first went off to university, um, like I said, I, I moved from being a very nice North girl. We're much more friendly in the North of England, I think. Um, my husband's from the South of England. Um, and when I moved down to London, I was surrounded by people that I found were really, um, it was a real shock to my senses. I would be walking in the underground, um, like the subway, and everyone would be bumping into me, and I'd be like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. They were the ones bumping into me. But I was the sweet, innocent North girl saying, oh, sorry to everyone. After about a month of getting pushed around, I'm not very tall either, I was like, you know, I'm done with this saying sorry life. And I was like, I need to toughen up. And even in my friendships, we, the way that I was used to interacting with my friends, it was much more just playfully innocent and just chilled out, whereas... In London, it was, always seemed to be an agenda. And I found myself just getting into situations like, no, I need to toughen up. And I changed because I wanted to fit in with the environment that I was in. I wanted people to come into my courtyard of my life to be friends with me, so I was the one that changed. My standards changed depending on the wind. I didn't have a constant. And the winds of people that used to come in and out of my life, like the stuff that used to go around about me that apparently I'd done, I don't even know what half of that stuff was. But because I didn't set up a standard of entry, the, the amount of people that walked in and out of my life just brought nothing but drama. I let my surroundings change me so I could just blend in. I was too afraid to stand out. And it says in Our, our High Calling, page 256, your associates may not be expected to be free from imperfections or sin, but in choosing your friends, you should place your standard as high as possible. The tone of your morals is estimated by the associates you choose. You should avoid contracting an intimate friendship with those whose example you would not choose to imitate. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? If you find yourself gravitating to certain types of people who like to do certain things, have conversations at certain times, or, you know, they just want to chill and vibe and, and aren't really serious about that standard of entry, which is Christ, you need to check the condition of your heart. I never looked back. I never self-examined because I thought I was right. You know, I had it down. I was, I was doing things the right way, but no, I was the one that hadn't set the right standard. And that's when I ended up getting into personal relationships that caused drama. I surrounded myself with people that didn't have my best interests at heart. One of my best friends ended up spreading the most stuff about me, and I would never have thought that she would have done that. The standard of entry wasn't Christ. Those people I look back with, I would never have been friends with them if I'd actually taken time at my courtyard door. The next thing that you walk into was the altar of burnt sacrifice. So upon arrival, the worshiper was met by the priests at the door, and they the ones that carried out the sacrifice. So the person would lay their hands on the sacrificial emblem, 
um, to be offered, and the offering would be accepted to make atonement for their sins. There was a purpose to coming. This practice by the person coming to the sanctuary was a demonstration of the desire to be reconciled to God. Sin separates. And the purpose of the sanctuary was to show that despite the separation that has been caused by sin between God and humanity, we can rest assured that God still very much wants us to be with him. And if you find that you've separated God from your friendship choices, your relationship choices, we don't need to fear because we know absolutely that God wants to bring us back to a relationship with him. He still wants to dwell with us and be part of that decision-making process. The offering brought was also to be the very best. It was to be without spot and blemish. And we need to consider if the friends we've allowed close to us are bringing the very best to our lives, and most importantly, are we bringing us our best before God? The question is, what are we burning on our altar of burnt sacrifice? Is it the things that need to be burnt up, like pride and selfishness and different things? Or do we find the good aspects of our lives constantly being burnt and consumed and got rid of, like me when I changed all of the nice attributes that I I had when I moved um, away to university? I burnt all of the good because I just wanted to fit in with what was going on down there. From the... From 2 Corinthians 3.18, we get the, the, the phrase, by beholding, we become changed. The very things that we surround ourselves with will change us and change our likes, change the things that we engage in. And very much so, the negative aspects of our, my character was being burnt away. I wasn't giving my best to God. And we know the story of Cain and Abel. Abel brought what God wanted as a sacrifice, but Cain brought what he wanted to. And have we brought our relationships before God, asking him to bless it and to accept it, just like Cain did? Lord, I want to be with this guy. He's just perfect for me. I want to be with this girl. She's wonderful. And we place this offering before God, and he's like, she shouldn't even be in your life. He should never have made it through your door. Why, why is it made it to the, to the altar? It should never have got in. Councils on Stewardship says, page 197, love will be revealed in sacrifice. The plan of redemption was laid in sacrifice, a sacrifice so broad and deep and high, it is immeasurable. Christ gave all for us, and those who receive Christ will be ready to sacrifice all for the sake of their Redeemer. The thought of his honor and glory will become before anything else. That's the passion God requires we bring to the altar. You know, often it's really easy for us to allow, like, small compromises to kind of take hold of our relationships or our friendships. We allow small little things, we let them be okay, and we say, oh, it's only really small. But there's a story that um, is actually in my wife's book, and um, it's a story of this young boy who wants to have his friends over um, to kind of have like a a movie night or a games night or, you know, fellowship time. And the dad's like, okay, um, what are you guys gonna do? And he's like, oh, we're gonna watch this movie, we're gonna watch that movie. Um, And the dad's like, well, I don't think you should be watching those kind of things because there's some um, things that are a bit immoral in them. There's a little bit of nudity, there's a little bit of, you know, kissing, a little bit of violence, and those things won't be good for you. And the son begins to plead with the dad. He's like, but dad, it's only small things. The movie's like 90% good, and it's only these small things. You know, we'll close our eyes. We won't won't look at them. You know what you do to kids? You put your hands in front of their eyes. and the dad's eventually, after this, this, this son, you know, reasons with his dad, his dad's like, okay, invite your friends over. So um, on the day that their friends are arriving, the dad um, decides that he's going to make his son some cookies. And uh, he makes some really nice smelling cookies. It's got the best ingredients in it. The son smells the cookies. He comes inside. 
And he's like, Dad, what are you doing? What are you doing? And his dad's like, whoa, I've made these cookies for you and your friends. And um, he's like, oh, great, what cookies are they? And he begins to reel off the ingredients. And the son is super excited. And all, all of a sudden, he feels like his dad is in the same um, mindset as him. You know, he's OK with the movies. He's, he's making these cookies. And then the dad says, but wait. I put one tiny piece of poo in the cookies. A really small amount, though. It's OK, because the 99% of the ingredients are the best ingredients you can find. Now, do we think that son would have eaten those cookies? No, because there was one tiny bit of bad in the cookies. So then the dad uses this as an illustration as to why his son should not go and do these bad things, even if it's a small bit of bad. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not eating those cookies. 100% not eating those cookies. So the dad eventually reasons with his son and tells him, you know, you're not going to be able to watch th these things, and these are the reasons why. And he had, he'd made him another batch of cookies that had 100% good ingredients. Um, but this is a, a little illustration to show us why we shouldn't compromise the really small amounts just for the sake of 90% good. You know, with God and Satan, there's no middle ground. There's no gray area. It's either black or white. It's either God or Satan. You're either for me or you're against me. And I think when we allow those small compromises, it almost call, we call it a creeping compromises. First, you allow a little bit. And then all of a sudden, over time, things start to develop and you, you begin to be consumed. Oh, it's okay, we'll just have that kiss. Oh, it's okay, we can just hold hands. Oh, it's okay, I'm not gonna go further. But you guys know what I'm talking about. One thing leads to another and before you know it, you're, conf you're consumed. So the importance is shown, um, I think, by the courtyard and in these these quotes that we really need to spend time in our courtyard. A lot of the drama we face later down the lines with matters of the heart have started because we have not been diligent with our courtyard. And you might find yourself as you do a clear out that you might be alone for a time. And that was scary for me, being alone. All of my friends do this, all of my friends like that. I don't have any friends right now. <laughs> Sorry, I'm and, suffering with sickness right now. <laughs> and maybe nobody will be with you at first as you realign your heart's desires with those of Christ. But rest assured that the whole point of this process is to bring us into closer communion with God and to find that right person. We know the story of what happened with like Eli and his sons. Um, they were doing crazy things. And what were the people... Um, in Israel saying, like, we don't want to come to the sanctuary. They're doing all sorts of profanity. I'll bring my sacrifice, and they're just going to extort me. They're doing this, they're doing that. And the good people stayed away because of the standard of the things that was happening in the sanctuary of God. Why can you not find your spouse? Why is it so hard to find my, my, my husband? Where is he? Maybe he sees the standard of what goes on in your courtyard and he doesn't want to have anything to do with that. You're waiting for him to enter your life, but he sees the way that you're conducting yourself and he is not interested. She doesn't want to go near you because of how you're conducting your life as a guy. She sees how you're treating other people. She sees the people you like to have in your courtyard and your friendship circles. And she's just not interested in being just another one of those girls. The battle to find the right person has only become a battle because of the standards that we have erected around ourselves. When the right people walk into your life, it is so obvious who the right person is. When he walked into my life, it was literally like in the movies where you have that kind of everything goes blurry and you just almost have like this, you know, and I didn't think that that could be the case. But because I'd spent time filtering out all of the people that just brought distractions, the simplicity of seeing him was, it was so insane. It was, it was so simple. But can I just say that that wasn't me. That was Christ. Mm. And it was only because I'd given up my desires from what I spoke about before that I was now able to be ready for her. But interestingly enough, um, 
We got engaged at GYC in 2011. And um, we, we were due to get married in September 16th. We did end up get married September 16th, the, the, the year coming. But it was about June of that year when um, I had kind of spiritually, my life had, was declining slightly. I'd become so focused on ministry that ministry was taking over my spiritual life. I was working, 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 and not spending enough time with God. And has anyone been through that scenario before where you're so focused on doing the work, so focused on ministry, so focused on your mind and so much and stuff that you actually neglect God slightly. And that's began to happen, and my wife began to notice. Now, we're due to get married in September, and in the June, my wife says to me, we, we'd send the invites out. We had invited all our friends and family. Plane tickets had been bought. The venue had been bought, had been paid for. She says to me, she writes me this long, my wife loves writing letters. <laughs> she wrote me this long letter. Um, and in summary, it basically said, if things don't change, the wedding's off. This is like two months, two, two and a half months before our wedding. Now, for Charlene, the sacrifice for her was, it wasn't just good enough, she wasn't just trying to get married him. That wasn't a goal for her. The goal was still Christ. So if, if now my relationship was lacking in Christ, well, her first priority is Christ, so she has to cut me off. And it can be, it can be as close as the day before the wedding. Now, praise the Lord, it was a wake-up call for me, and I managed to turn things around, and we're still standing here today by God's grace. But the point is, the man should not be the one drawing you in or the girl should not be the one drawing you in. It has to be Christ. Amen. And he is the foundation of everything. And it kind of brings me on to um, our next story here where we're looking at Genesis 39, 19. Now to give us a little bit of backstory, this is about Joseph. Everyone knows the story of Joseph. He's sent as a slave. He's now he's, um, working for Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife approaches him. Now... The story goes and says that he was handsome in form and void. Now, I'm just skin and bone, me personally. But I, I, I picture him and I think that he was muscular and toned. He was a worker. You know, back then, all they wore was, was kind of kilts. So he would have had his body out. And Potiphar gets that lusting eye. People know what I'm talking about? Ladies, you know what I'm talking about? You see a nice guy? And that eye just wanders. I see some smiles in some places, but I'm not going to point fingers. You know what I'm talking about? And guys, vice versa. A nice girl walks in, and you kind of, you know... <laughs> yeah, guys, you know what I'm talking about. Let's not play games here. You know what I'm talking about. But you can imagine that if Joseph had compromised, right? If he had just said, oh, I'll just kiss her today. Do you think that the next day it would have been, oh, I'll, I'll kiss her and then maybe something else? It, it kind of would have developed, right? But no, this is what happens to Joseph. He flees. He runs for his life. Now, going back to the story that I was just talking about with Charlene and myself just before we got married, she was ready to flee. I was becoming a distraction. She was ready to flee and run for her life. And that's the point we have to get to. We have to be ready to be able to give up absolutely everything and flee for our lives because if we don't do that we're going to end up someone else I'm going to go to a bit later is, is Bathsheba and David David's the opposite of this he doesn't flee he goes down and goes gets Bathsheba but Joseph flees but he doesn't just flee it says here he left he fled and he ran it's like a three step process he left, he bounced, he made moves, then he ran. Like, there's got to be an action to it. There's got to be a movement. There's got to be a determination to want to get away from whatever is holding you back. You've got to lay it at the altar and sacrifice it. You've got to give it up. Now, for me, this signifies purpose. There has to be a purpose. Because if there's not a purpose in our movement and our motion... We're going to get caught up in this cycle. And that's how we're going to fall into these traps. When temptation comes around the corner, you have to flee for your lives. Now, as I mentioned, let's, let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel 11. 
This is David and Bathsheba here. And we're going to read a few chapters, a few verses. Okay, verse 1. And it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, what's the first problem here? He should have been out there. He should have been doing something that he wasn't. He should have been out with his king fighting. Well, he should have been out with his, his army fighting as the king. But instead, the first problem is, he's somewhere where he shouldn't be. Now, how many of us find ourselves in situations that we shouldn't be in? And it's only when we've made the mistake that we're like, oh. but the warning signs are there. You know you shouldn't be there. It's about. It's as simple as that. We have to flee. Second option. Second problem. Actually, before I go there, Sister White says in Patriarchs and Prophets, it was now while David was at ease and, ungu and unguarded that the tempter seized the opportunity to occupy his mind. The moment we lose focus of what we're supposed to be or where we're supposed to be or what God wants us to be doing is when we're giving room for the enemy to operate. It's almost like that moment we do that from the first presentation that we did, that reason shrinks. The desires increase. Straight away, the moment we're where we're not supposed to be, that's what takes place. Now verse 2, it says, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now, I don't know about you guys, but it says here that David arose from his bed. Sorry, it says, then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed. Now, I personally arise from my bed in the morning, not the evening. So I look at this story and I think that David should have been sleeping or he should have been in his room. He should have been in his bedroom vicinity. He should not have been out wandering in other places because it says that he was in his bed. So that for me is mistake number two. He's kind of made the first mistake, now he's moved on to mistake number two. And I'm going to show you this quick picture. We, um, for many of you that, that know, we also run another ministry called Lineage, where we make small um, videos on the Reformation and church history. And um, we recently were shooting our third season of Lineage, and we were out in Israel. And right here is sort of the view that David would have had. Just on the right, you can't see, but just on the right is what they call David's palace. So David would have been walking and he would have looked out and I can imagine that Bathsheba would have been somewhere in this region. We don't know where, but she would have been somewhere in this region, okay? And she would have been bathing. Now, here is mistake number three. In verse four, I've closed my Bible, sorry. Is everyone still there, 2 Samuel 11? Verse 4 says, Then David sent messengers and took her. Actually, let's go back to 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? For me, that's almost like the Holy Spirit. You know when you're doing something wrong and, someone's like, and the Holy Spirit hits you and you just ignore it? For me, that was the Holy Spirit right there telling David that, Don't you realize that that's Uriah's wife? How many times does that happen to us as individuals? Like, we're, first of all, we're, we're, we're where we're not supposed to be. And then the Holy Spirit hits us like that and we ignore it. Because that's exactly what it does in verse 4. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. She was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. So then, then we have this kind of spiral effect. David has made the mistake. She then becomes pregnant. So what does David go and do? He goes and sorts to get Uriah killed. This tiny little sin from not being where he was supposed to be 
has escalated into pretty much murder. He's committed adultery, he's committed murder. And now we find ourselves in a situation where David and um, Bathsheba's, sorry, where Uriah and Bathsheba's marriage comes to an end because of death. Now, this all was due to sexual sin. And how many marriages or how many relationships are being destroyed by sexual sins? Now, we have to lay these things at the altar. There's some serious statistics that I'm about to break down with you guys that I want us to see the seriousness of this. For me, this is one issue that has to be cleared up before we enter into a relationship because this can be detrimental to our future marriages and our spouses. Here is your brain on the left-hand side. In the middle is your brain on heroin. On the right-hand side, here is your brain on pornography. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but the heroin and the pornography, the pornography looks worse. A lot worse. Now, why do I bring this up? What's this have to do with everything? Well, back in David's day, it was sexual. You actually had to physically go and do something. But in our day, we have our phones, we have our computers, we have iPads. We have access to so much sexual immorality that it's killing relationships, killing marriages. It's causing so many people to fall and stumble. And the statistics I'm about to share with you are devastating. 90% of teens and 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about pornography with their friends. 90%. 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. That was, imagine if 60% of you guys stood up here. That would be how many people in the whole of Christianity who are struggling with this stuff. It's not a joke. 51% of male students and 32% of female students first viewed it before their teenage years. This is something that is happening kind of like 11, 10 years old now. It's getting younger and younger and younger. And it's causing massive problems. 70, 71% of teens hide it from their parents. So not, not only do we have a problem, a problem with it, but we're unable to talk to anyone about it. It's embarrassing to some people. You know, it's something that we don't really want to discuss or talk about anymore. Now, here's the marriage ones. 70% of wives of sex addicts could be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. This is why we have to deal with these things beforehand, because it's just ruining the marriages. It goes on to say, the wives of users also develop deep psychological wounds, <coughs> Sorry, commonly reporting feeling of betrayal, loss, mistrust, devastation, and anger in responses to the discovery or disclosure of a partner's pornographic online sexual activity. According to the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, 68% of divorce cases involved one party meeting a new love interest over the internet. 56% involved one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 47% involved spending excessive time on the computer and 33% involved spe spending excessive time in chat rooms, a commonly sexualized forum. So the percentage rates of why divorces are taking place are super high when it comes to these particular issues. So if you're going into marriage and you're struggling with these situations, it's almost like you're gonna spiral. Because you now have this, you know, when you, when you watch this stuff, it's, it's super degrading. To the, to the female. So as a husband, you don't have this expectation which isn't Christ-like of your female in the bedroom. And it's completely wrong. It's not right. But without dealing with this beforehand and laying it at the altar and giving, up to, giving it to Christ, you are actually going to harm, when you do find that right person, you're going to harm your relationship. 100%. It's, it's definitely going to happen. Sure. Running out of time here. So I'm going to skip some of these. Um, but one of the key ones that I wanted to go to is that only 7%, um, sorry, 265 million dollars are spent on pornography every day. Every day. 
Um, and only 7% of members report their church has a ministry program for those struggling with it. 7%. So we're talking about a problem here that's affecting over 60, 70, 80% of people within the church. And only 7% of churches have programs that deal with this issue. That's for me, that's something that, we, that as a church we have to work on and changing. But you know what? There is a solution, there is a remedy. For David and Bathsheba, if we go back to the text, and we head down to verse 15, and it says, Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord, and the next um, um, sentence says, And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. Now, if you continue reading, eventually that child died. But David goes through this process after this situation. He begins to pray. He begins to ask for forgiveness. He begins to change his ways. He begins going through this process where he wants to ask forgiveness for what he has done to Uriah. And interestingly, God doesn't recognize um, Uriah's wife as David's wife. It says here, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. It's still Uriah's wife. But then, God go, but then David goes through this process. And if we, if we fast forward to um, verse 24, it says, Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. Now all of a sudden, because David has gone through this process, a forgiveness has happened, and now Bathsheba is being recognized as David's wife. And Solomon is born. So there's forgiveness, there's repentance there's a change and Solomon is born who becomes one of the wisest kings the wisest king the wisest person that ever lived David had to fast he had to pray he had to lay all these problems out on the altar of sacrifice he had to give it himself ultimately he had to deny himself before change could take place and that kind of moves us on so after the altar of burnt sacrifice um, the next point that we came to before you could make it into the holy place was the laver. It was basically a bronze wash basin, and it's where the priests washed their hands before, um, wash their hands and feet before approaching the altar to offer the sacrifice, and after they'd made the sacrifice, they'd wash again. And they also had to wash before they could even enter the holy place. So it's kind of the most used article in the sanctuary. And it was practical and symbolic of purification from the actions carried out by the hands and for the paths walked by the feet. And if they didn't carry this part of the temple service out, they would die. It was really serious. This constant washing was a reminder to the priest and watching, and, and watching Israel of the importance of being cleansed from sin. And the laver was positioned between the altar and the entrance so that the priest could also wash before entering the holy place. It was a complete process. Before they entered the presence of God or got closer to him, there had to be this washing process. And there are many people that we may have in our life that used to be a support back in the day. Like, they may have been spiritual strength for us, but maybe they've changed and maybe there's a distraction. Even if you've sorted out your courtyard, the fact that the laver is there right at the last point before you get into the holy place, it shows that this purification process, this process of sorting through what's happening in our courtyard is a constant, constant thing. We need to keep searching our own hearts for anything that's hindering us from a closer walk with God. Jeremiah 2.13 says... For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. How many of us have fashioned for ourselves our own idea of purification? Our own ideas of how I'm going to fix my past mistakes and cover up those things. Jeremiah tells us that these ideas, these self-appointed ideas, they can hold no water. Christ cannot abide in our hearts if we hold up our own wash basin of standards. The constant sacrificing the priest performed daily meant the laver was literally the most entirely, entire, well, the most used article. 
and it was a precursor to every other process in the courtyard and the bridge from the courtyard to the holy place. Christ is that fountain of living water. He is that bridge. He's the way that you'll be able to determine who is going to come into that holy place of your life. Now, how important is water to us? How much of our total body weight is water? Does anyone know? Right, so it's about up to 60%. And how much of our brains is water? Yeah, it's like 80 to 90, it's a big percent. If we don't replenish our water stores daily, our bodies will slowly wilt and die, just like a plant. We don't just die straight away, there'll be a wilting process, and you'll end up dying. Similarly, living without Christ in our life causes a spiritual wilting, a spiritual dehydration, and he is the essential foundation upon which our sanctuaries are to be built. Every aspect of who we are is completely dependent on Christ to remain functional. This is a great quote from counsels to physicians and medical students. It says, unless the spirit and principles which, are character- which characterize the life of Christ be planted in the heart, they will not control the life. Very many professed Christians are so only in name. That was my problem. I was a Christian in name. I wanted a good godly marriage, but I actually was only a Christian in name. My actions didn't speak that. They have no root in themselves. They have a superficial knowledge of the truth and break off some of their evil practices, but the heart is still filled with pride, impurities, unholy ambition, self-importance, and love for the supremacy. I was the most important person in my life. The soul temple must be cleansed of its defilement. There must be purity of thought and intensity of desire, united with earnest efforts to meet the standard in God's word, or they will never become elevated, subdued, purified, and wear the white linen, which is the righteousness of the saints, and become fitted for the companionship of the pure and holy. If your desire is to be in heaven, or to have an experience of heaven here on earth in your relationships and marriages, we need to wash ourselves and purify ourselves with Christ's standard. He wants to be the standard of our choices and decisions. And water's a really good way of seeing your reflection. It used to be how they used mirrors back in the day. And marriage is a way of showing yourself. Uh, It gives you a better idea and a picture of who you are. When I first got married, I thought, okay, I'm going to be this wonderful wife. And I I love doing laundry. Um, I have a master's in textile design, so I love anything to do with fabric. I'm really, really particular about separating my colors. At one point, I used to do like five separate washes. And it got to the point where um, my husband is very good. If he takes off his socks, he puts them in a ball, and he puts them in the laundry basket. He doesn't leave them everywhere, which I thought, great, I'm onto a winner here. Um, Anyway, so I'm downstairs, and I'm taking my white wash out of the washing machine. And I felt one of his like sports socks, like the long ones that he wears to play football, soccer. I'm like, what's this? I opened up the sock and inside is a black sock because he likes his feet to be warm. So he wears a a, a small sock and then he puts his big sock over the top. And very dutifully, he took them both off and put them in the wash. And what ends up in my white wash? A black sock. Oh no, you didn't. And I remember sitting there with um, my, the sock in my hand thinking, I'm going to go upstairs and blast him. I thought, no, no, no. I'm going to be a good Christ-like wife. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to speak kindly to him and explain to him how this just can't work for me, which I did. And he accepted it. And for a week, he separated his socks. <laughs> a week later now, I think it was the other way around, I think I was doing a black wash and there was a white sock inside of his black sock. I was just like, oh my goodness. And I thought, immediately thought, he doesn't love me, he doesn't care, how could he do this? I spoke so nicely to him. And I went upstairs and I was about to blast him. I was literally like this on the door, ready to go into his office and just blast him. And then I realized it gave me a picture of who I actually was. Like, is a sock that big of a deal? 
No, it isn't. But I saw that marriage gave me the option to see just how highly strung I was and how insanely like pedantic I could be about certain processes in my life. And you know what? I just thought that, you know what, maybe he's just incapable, and now I just make sure I separate his socks before I do the wash. I actually had to, I got a picture of myself through marriage. And that's what the labor can show us, that water, that Christ being in your life, it can show you that you can either continue the way that you are, go blast him over something so insignificant as a sock, or you could actually just lay it down and give it up. It shows you who you are, and that's what this process of getting into relationship with Christ does. Who you let in through the door shows you who you are. What you're offering on your altar of burnt sacrifice because of who you're surrounded with shows you who you are. The standard that you use to purify your life, if it's your own ideas of what you think is good, or Christ's ideas of what you think is good, it shows you who you are. And as the labor was um, the beginning and conclusion to many of the services in the tabernacle, we must remember that it's Christ who will start and finish this work in our lives. It's not something that we can do on our own. You may not even know how to begin the process of sorting out what goes on in your courtyard. But I'd encourage you that the simple thing is to get back to Christ. This next presentation, when we go into the holy place, shows exactly using the table of showbread, the altar of incense of prayer, and the candlestick, how practically you can get back into that relationship. When that girl in the room initially turned round and saw Christ standing at the door, what was her reaction? You're weird. Like, why are you knocking at my door? She had no desire to allow somebody like that in her life. And even then, she was just like, you know what? I don't actually even know how you'd come in. And many of us find ourselves in that situation where we don't know how to let go of the things that we've been doing and to allow the good in. How do I get rid of those friends? Am I going to be by myself? But I'm at university. How do I just not be around these people anymore? There is a very practical way, as we go through the next, the next session, we're almost done here, that shows us that without Christ, we cannot do anything. I know, aside from relationships, the sanctuary message is all about Christ. It's about his sacrifice. That's what the, the lamb represented. I hope by repeating the name of Christ that I'm getting us to see that literally without Christ in every aspect of our lives, our friendships, the people we surround ourselves with, we literally will not find that right person. We will end up being in relationships that cause us pain. And even if we ended up married to a person, it doesn't mean that you know, they're going to be perfect. But without Christ, we will not have the confidence to be in a relationship that we can sacrifice ourselves and be vulnerable. Love takes vulnerability. I wasn't very good at being vulnerable, which is why I struggle to communicate with my husband. What I always appreciate about God putting him in my life is that everything he does, I know he's striving to be like Christ. So if I have a problem, I can go to him and be like, babe, this problem, it, this doesn't work for me. And because he loves me and is seeking to sacrifice himself for me as Christ gave himself up for the church, he gets rid of it just like that. And guys, that is the sort of confidence that your future spouse, and your, if you're already married, your spouse needs to see in you. That sacrifice, dedication, and focus to Christ alone not your own standards, which can be changeable, but Christ. And I have a confidence that even though we've been through our ups and downs, I know God put him in my life. I don't have to go to myself because I orchestrated the relationship. I go to Christ and be like, it's your problem. You put him in my life. You fix it. And he does every time. That is the confidence that you can have in your relationships that allow you to work through anything that life throws at you if you know that you've given yourself to a man of God or a woman of God. And it starts by us practicing these things in our singleness before we get to marriage.
If we don't surrender to Christ in our singleness, at the door, at the altar, at the labor, we're for sure not going to continue that practice and suddenly figure it out when it comes to marriage. Singleness, I believe, I mean, the quality of your singleness right now is determining the quality of your marriage. You are setting yourself up for your marriage right now. I did not value my singleness. It was wasted on me. And I had to learn a lot of things in marriage that I should have learned previously that would have helped us not have the ups and downs that we did. I did not spend the time valuing my singleness. No one said that to me. Everyone was like, oh, when are you going to get married? Look at this person. There's always like this push and drive, you know, especially as a woman, you've got your body clock ticking like, oh, when am I going to find that right person? It's always about that person and getting to that situation, except, and there's no focus on being ready, being that right person. What a shame that if that right person somehow floats around your courtyard and you miss out on him or her because you didn't take the time in these areas to be right with Christ. If you're wondering why he's not entering your life or she's not coming around the door, check out your courtyard. Are you displaying the sort of standards that Hophni and Phineas were, sons of Eli? So that person that you want is avoiding you and not interested? When those things were gotten rid of, the right people started to come and worship again. We see it time and again in, in instances of reform in the Bible, when the idols were got rid of, the high places were got rid of, and Israel came back to God. We saw the standard of worship happening, and all the right people, Elijah didn't think that there was anybody left in Israel. You might think, there's nobody left for me to marry. There's, I've been everywhere. I thought the same thing. I'm from the north of England. There was no one in the north of England. I studied for seven years in the south of England. There was no one in the south of England, even though that's where he's from. I actually drove past his house every single day for three years to get to university. Didn't know I was driving past the house of my husband. He wasn't on my radar, and he, wasn't in, he wouldn't have entered into my courtyard, eh? Because his life wasn't anything I wasn't interest, interested in, and my life wasn't anything he was interested in. But I can assure you, if you align yourself with Christ in this area of your life, he will see fit to open up the doors for these people to start making it into your holy place, which is where we're going next, and eventually into the most holy place, which is that union and that marriage and all that's involved in that. And that's the end of part one. We're gonna to go to part two in about 10 minutes. If you have any questions, please continue to um, write them in this app, or if you go on the website, there's some really good questions still coming in, and we're going to answer them. I can't wait for you to meet the couples that we have lined up for you, and we're going to check back in 15 minutes and get even deeper into the holy place. And also, just before you leave, um, all our content's available in this book that my wife has written. We have a few here. Um, if anyone's interested, they're $10. Um, or you can come to the Lineage booth. That's where we're going to be selling them, at the Lineage booth, at some point in the next few days. Okay. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we conclude this first part, the courtyard, I ask that you please um, walk with us. Help us to take the time in this very important area of our life. I know we've taken a whole presentation just on this one area, but it's so important for the foundations. The people that we allow into our lives with these standards are the very the quality of people that we're going to start having relationships with. And as we move closer in the next session, I pray that you would help us to remember this foundation so we can see just how easy it is to find the right person. So easy to recognize who you have determined to be the lover of our heart. But first, Lord, we need to learn that you are the ultimate lover of our hearts first, to learn that standard of love and what we actually need to be loved in the right way. I pray that you'll be with us now and bring us back soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.